Welcome to Harvard's Critical Issues. The bad news is, of course, that we're not able to assemble at Harvard as we had before the uh, coronavirus started. The good news is that we've, since we've taken to Zoom, we now have an audience that extends beyond our local audience, and we're happy to welcome those of you from other areas who are able to join us today. Last week is the first uh, time we tried the critical issues with the Zoom, and it worked great because we had a great opening speaker, who was Bill Overholt. And I, Bill Overholt is a friend of Jim Mulvanen, and when I suggested who were some of the speakers we should get this year, he says Jim Mulvanen. And so I will turn it over to Bill Overholt, and he will introduce Jim Mulvanen. Bill Overholt, it's yours. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to introduce James Mulvaney. James is Director for Intelligence Integration at SOS International's Intelligence Solutions Group. Before that, he was Vice President of Defense Group International's Intelligence Division and Director of their Center for Intelligence Analysis. If you wonder what all that means, uh, James teaches managers of spooks how to manage spooks. He's often ahead of his time. When we were at RAND together in 2002, he taught me about the, the future problems we were going to have with Huawei. He's the author of the book, uh, Chinese Industrial Espionage, which is the the Bible of American research on intellectual property theft. He got his bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan, studied Communist Party history at Fudan University in Shanghai, and got his PhD from UCLA. It's a pleasure to welcome James Mullen. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for the kind uh, invitation to, to speak today. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be with all of you. Um, uh, you're right, I, I work now for a company called SOS International right here on the Polo. Um, I'd like to give a shout out to the SOSI employees around the world that, that may be attending today. Um, and uh, also a bit of a preview, uh, we just sent to the publisher the sequel for Chinese Industrial Espionage, which is um, titled as the same as my talk today, Beyond Espionage, um, and talks about many of the new phenomena. Um, and now the other interesting thing is normally at this time of year, I would be traveling around the country, um, going to public policy schools and recruiting. I will tell you that we are hiring for all the students out there. Um, if you speak mission critical languages and you're eligible for a U.S. security clearance, please just DM me on Twitter um, because we actually hired three people in the last two weeks. So despite the pandemic, um, uh, we, are, we are actively growing and looking for, for new people. Um, the, the main theme of my talk today uh, is, is continuity and change. Um, areas where we see continuity in um, our relationship with China across these very controversial areas and then and in areas where we see it changing. Uh, and in, the, in my homage to Kurt Campbell, um, I have three points that I'd like to make today. Um, the first deals with the phenomena of industrial espionage and IP theft. 
Um, and despite the pandemic, which obviously has restricted our physical travel, um, the evolution of Chinese uh, government-sponsored behavior in this area uh, continues apace. Um, now, what are my metrics for that? Um, I will st stipulate from the outset that I'm actually quite skeptical uh, of assessments of monetary damage uh, that people like to throw around. I think they're often self-serving and inflated. Um, I'm much more focused on specific cases, um, specific damage to industries and specific companies. Um, and I'll talk about some of that today, um, rather than sort of try to bowl you over with large numbers, billions of dollars here and there. Um, a key indicator for me is always cases worthy of prosecution. Um, and while I'll talk a little bit later about, um, you know, some of the dilemmas we've had, some of the mistakes that have been made in that area, um, I will tell you for many, many years of dealing with assistant U.S. attorneys all around this country, um, that they are very conservative um, about taking cases to court and generally don't want to go into a courtroom and be embarrassed and generally have very high thresholds for the evidentiary standard that they use uh, to push these cases. Um, but why is it, frankly, you know, let's get to the heart of the matter. Why is it that we've seen this dramatic increase over the last almost 20 years in uh, Chinese government-sponsored espionage and IP theft? Now, my good Marxist answer to that is the economic factors of production. Um, there was an interesting Chinese economic conference in, in December 2004. Um, and you have to understand, from 1978 to 2004, um, we had seen all of the dramatic successes of the Chinese economic modernization. They were on the covers of all the magazines, quadrupled their GDP. But there was something about the materials at this meeting that suggested a malaise. Um, there, there was a reassessment, and in particular, they were very focused on the fact that what had happened, as dramatic as it was, as successful as it was, um, had nonetheless been a fairly shallow modernization. Uh, what do I mean by that? There were still largely enclaves of uh, places in China that were importing components from abroad, assembling those components into finished products and exporting them. Um, rather than the depth of indigenous production, indigenous innovation within China. Um, and moreover than that, there was a real concern that there were just not enough global Chinese brands. Um, unless, you know, you're like, um, you know, you're a wine aficionado and you had a high R wine fridge um, or you're a telecoms company with Huawei equipment. At that point, there were, in 2004, there were really not that many uh, Chinese brands. And so they began to put together the elements of a very large strategic effort, um, the most important of which were a series of, of industrial plans. Um, and I want to highlight the uh, 2006 to 2020 mid to long range S&T plan, um, which highlighted the extent to which they needed to put greater pressure on the multinational companies that were operating in China to more aggressively and more rapidly transfer their uh, technology for, to promote this indigenous innovation of Chinese companies. But there was also a section of that report that called for a collection by other means, um, which in other sources we know was a euphemism for increasing espionage uh, and IP theft because most of the technology that they were really interested in on the high end was simply not resident in China. And the only option at that point they had to get to it was through these illicit efforts. But there were a range of other key elements of this strategic effort. There were the state subsidies. 
Many of you are familiar, no doubt, with China's efforts uh, to um, uh, modernize its semiconductor and integrated circuit industry. Uh, and they set up the so-called IC fund with $150 billion to go out and buy major companies, major technology around the world. Um, the phenomenon of military-civilian fusion, which used to be known as civil-military integration, um, which was the, the dynamic by which defense technologies and civilian technologies um, could be uh, interchanged within those two systems. And, and here I have to give a shout out to Harvard's own Elsa Kania, uh, who is doing some really interesting work in that area. And I'm, I'm always happy to work with her. Um, you have the national champion phenomena. And here, you know, we can talk about Huawei uh, all day long, but national champions uh, in each industry that uh, get generous state subsidies through bank lines of credit, um, tax breaks, and other things in order to be uh, portrayed to the outside world um, as China's uh, global competitor in a given industry. Um, we've seen a blizzard of laws and regulations come out in the last five or six years, including the cybersecurity law, uh, which dramatically changes the dynamic for information technology modernization and data protection within China. Um, we've seen China use uh, information and communication technology standards at the global level as a trade weapon in order to create openings for Chinese companies and to, and in some cases, to distort uh, the international market. Um, we've seen in the in recent years their use of overseas investment strategies through mergers and acquisitions and joint ventures and greenfield investments that then fundamentally caused. Um, the U.S. Congress to update our Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States law to anticipate some of these new moves. Um, you know, although it's a little outre right now, obviously one belt, one road um, as a mechanism, in my view, for creating global path dependency uh, for Chinese companies and Chinese standards around the world. And then finally, cyber and technology espionage to facilitate uh, a number of these dynamics. So, I want, to, I want you to think first and foremost about embedding that espionage within all the contours of that larger uh, strategic effort. Now, some of you may be familiar uh, with a study that Andrew Kim did in the Cardoza Law Review um, in which he analyzed quite a few um, Chinese espionage and IP theft cases in the United States um, at the behest of the Committee for 100 looking for evidence of racial bias. Um, uh, within the Department of Justice prosecutions. Um, I do think that there were significant methodological flaws um, in Mr. Kim's study, um, which I lay out at more length in, in our new book. Um, but at the, for the, and then I'm happy to talk about it in the Q&A, but I think suffice to say, one of the comments of one of the external reviewers that was actually quoted in the report may be sufficient to sort of summarize my position. He said, Dr. David Harris said, we must recognize the limitations of this data. We cannot tell how many investigations took place during the study period, what ethnic groups the target of those investigations came from, and the rate at which those investigations actually blossomed into charged cases. The data presented in this study do not prove the, existing, the existence of researching while Asian. Um, so I have to applaud Mr. Kim for putting such a, a strong critique um, review um, within his report itself, but I have to agree uh, with, with a lot of the findings. Instead, um, I've done a lot of my own analysis of, of the cases uh, since 2004, and, and I'd, like to, I'd like to offer that to you. 
um, the Department of Justice recently announced uh, that there were over a thousand investigations currently ongoing around the United States involving IP theft with a China nexus. That either means that there is a contact with some sort of an entity in China all the way to the point where uh, there's an identified what we call a foreign instrumentality, which is an entity that is either part of the Chinese government or they're under the direct control of the Chinese government who is involved in the cases. And all 56 of the FBI's field offices are conducting, uh, nationwide are conducting investigations involving IP theft. Um, Since the early 2000s, 80% of the economic espionage cases in the United States involve some level of Chinese instrumentality. And there's a nexus to China in at least 60% of the trade secret theft cases. Now, in my own research, I've looked at 147 of these cases, either what we call an 1831 case, which is economic espionage under U.S. law, or an 1832, which is trade secret theft. Um, Among those 147 cases, there were 33 indictments that are still pending, and there were 114 convictions. Uh, But lest anybody out there think that this is some recent phenomena associated with the current administration or with the trade war, I will tell you that that data reveal very significant spikes in cases in 2009 and 2013 during the Obama administration. Um, I will say that in terms of the cases in the last two or three years, it's clear that the DOJ's China initiative has in fact devoted additional resources uh, to these cases and certainly greater encouragement uh, of these cases. Um, One of the interesting findings though is that contra Mr. Kim's study, that it's actually national origin, not ethnicity, uh, that is the most dispositive indicator uh, among the data set. Um, That the number of either PRC citizens, um, you know, who were permanent residents in the United States or naturalized U.S. citizens of PRC origin never fell below half uh, in any of the cases. Um, And I would only contrast that with the recent um, espionage cases involving more traditional government secret stealing espionage, in which the vast majority of the people convicted in the United States, and here I'm talking about Kevin Patrick Mallory, Glenn Duffy Shriver, um, Fondren and Burgesson, um, were in fact not Chinese ethnicity at all. Uh, And so we see the Chinese intelligence services perhaps trying to go against type, perhaps go against what they believe is a counterintelligence bias within the U.S. system um, by recruiting Anglos um, as potential assets rather than recruiting ethnic Chinese. But on the IP theft and economic espionage side, um, it's overwhelmingly PRC citizens or naturalized U.S. citizens of PRC origin. Interestingly, very few people from Taiwan, uh, despite the linguistic and cultural affinity that they might enjoy in being able to facilitate those kinds of cases. Um, But the other interesting thing that pops out of the data for me is who the beneficiaries are in China across these 147 cases. Um, 57% of them are organizations that I would identify as a foreign instrumentality. Um, Now, that's not just government and military organizations, but given the nature of the Chinese political milieu, um, I would also include, for instance, universities uh, in that. Why? Uh, Because Chinese universities... Uh, Many of them are either directly subordinate to the State Administration of Science and Technology and Industry for National Defense, 
like Harbin Engineering University, um, or are subordinate to the Ministry of Education. But my own experience at Fudan um, certainly taught me that the party secretary of Fudan University was much more powerful than the president of Fudan University. Um, and so the, the existence of party committees uh, throughout the university system, uh, the ability of the Ministry of Education, which is itself dominated by its party committee, uh, to appoint major uh, administrators in the university, department chiefs, and so on and so forth. Um, I do not view uh, Chinese universities, therefore, as independent educational institutions um, as we're accustomed to in the United States. And in fact, there's plenty of evidence in the cases involving Chinese universities uh, that they worked very closely with the ministries of science and technology and the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology to coordinate collection requirements, to receive funding, to open up labs uh, that were going to exploit the technology that was being acquired uh, from the United States through these collection channels. Now, this is not to say um, that there haven't been wrongful accusations um, against individuals in, uh, uh, of Chinese descent here in the United States. That is certainly true. Um, and I would only make the following uh, distinction, which is, and this may be cold comfort, um, and there's nothing I can really do about that, but the combination of our free press and our independent judiciary in the United States has meant that many of the people, if not all of them, that were wrongly accused have in fact avenues for relief from those wrongful accusations um, and have in fact received monetary awards um, uh, from the US government for those wrongful accusations. And I can only contrast that uh, with China, which brags of its near 100% conviction rate within its judicial system and ask whether people in fact would have the same type of relief from wrongful accusa uh, accusation and prosecution on the Chinese side. Just something for you to ponder. Um, my second point today is that um, the U.S. government, um, I think rightly, um, and this was the main theme of our book, Chinese Industrial Espionage, which I co-authored with two uh, colleagues from the U.S. government, that the U.S. government is increasingly focused not on uh, economic espionage and IP theft um, on, as a criminal threshold, but increasingly focused on what we call non-traditional collection. Um, and this is collection... Um, going on um, in, among researchers and labs and universities and defense industrial based companies in the United States where people are being co-opted for technology transfer um, that falls below the criminal threshold of 1831 or 1832, the economic espionage and trade secret theft cases, but is nonetheless injurious uh, to U.S. national security. And one, that, one of the um, non-traditional collection pathways that you've likely heard a lot about at, at Harvard um, are the so-called Chinese government talent programs. Um, in particular, the most infamous of them, the Thousand Talents Program. Now, what are these talent programs? Well, these are, these are very robustly, Chinese uh, robustly funded programs by the Chinese government to attract foreign talent from abroad to either do research for or research in China. In other words, to find a mechanism to get access to the know-how and the innovation um, and the scientific expertise that is resident outside of China to bring it back to China in order to improve indigenous innovation in China and its own R&D base. 
Um, now, the Thousand Talents program, um, as which I said is one of the largest and most, most famous of these, um, according to the Global Times, one of the Chinese propaganda outlets, um, has funded 7,000 researchers around the globe since 2008. Now, the Thousand Talents program um, is only one of many programs within the Chinese system. In fact, um, we're doing a lot of research on the over 590 other talent programs, as well as the 100 startup contests and the 500 supporting offices uh, that exist in China in order to attract this kind of talent from abroad. Now, I'll talk more about this in a little while, but what is the importance of these talent programs? In my view, it actually is trying to fill a major gap um, that has been revealed in the Chinese innovation system by the economic espionage and, tra and uh, trade secret theft, which is to say we see time and time again in these cases uh, where Chinese entities are stealing the first generation of a technology uh, bringing it back to China, and then the army of, you know, and here we often hear about, you know, China graduating huge numbers of engineers every year, 500,000 engineers. I wouldn't call all of them engineers in the sense that we would say someone from MIT is an engineer. I think many of them are better described as technicians. Um, and, the, you know, these technicians have a remarkable track record through the decades of being able to reverse engineer products from abroad. Um, uh, there's a particular talent there. But reverse engineering is not the same as understanding the organic know-how and innovation that's at the heart of these technologies. And time and time again, we see Chinese entities having to come back and stealing the second generation of the technology rather than being able to learn enough from the first stolen generation to be able to then innovate and create the second generation. The talent programs, in my view, exist in part to bring the people back to China who can provide the missing intangible context, the mortar between the bricks, that the, the organic zuofa and shangfa in Chinese that is at the heart of these technologies that is not contained in the stolen blueprints. Um, and the, when these individuals come back um, and they have these two-week you know, espionage vacations in China and they go to the Great Wall and they visit the Terracotta Warriors, but they also spend a week with uh, peers from their industry being debriefed on various technologies, that these are the very fora um, in which many of these key contextual and intangible innovation questions can be asked um, about some of these stolen technologies. Um, but these talent programs feed into an enormous tech transfer system on the Chinese side. Um, there are over two dozen laws that we've identified in China creating this transfer apparatus. It is managed by a professional cadre um, of hundreds, if not thousands, of Chinese government S&T transfer specialists. Um, these uh, talent programs feed into over 300 so-called pioneering parks for overseas Chinese scholars and 500 incubators. 160 innovation centers, 276 national model transfer organizations, um, even including 90 plus uh, nonprofit non uh, organizations located in the United States um, who are partnered with uh, Chinese Communist Party and Chinese local and national government organizations in order to spot and assess uh, US technical personnel 
um, and bring those people into the talent programs so that they can then participate in this tech transfer apparatus. Um, and when you read Chinese material, um, and I think that uh, I've always been struck, frankly, as a, as a sinologist by the extent to which the Chinese government uh, regards its language as its first layer of crypto, uh, because so much of the material, the thousands of primary source footnotes in our first book on Chinese industrial espionage were overwhelmingly Chinese government documents uh, that had never been translated. And one of the consistent themes in these documents is with the so-called, the concept of operating from two bases, uh, GD, the Anga GD. And what they mean by that is rather than trying to lure scientific and research personnel to China permanently, uh, that they would prefer that those personnel stay in the United States and in Western Europe and other places because that's where the innovation is occurring. And so while they want them to travel to China at Chinese government expense, they want them to divulge technical knowledge through scripted venues, they want to be briefed, they want to brief these individuals on China's technology interests, they also then want them to return to this foreign base, this, this foreign GD, um, uh, so that they can maintain their access to the information. Now, some of you are familiar uh, in the last year or two that both the National Institute of Health and the National Science Foundation in the United States um, have begun to crack down on what they regard as inappropriate behavior um, by scientists and researchers in the United States who have been receiving NIH and NSF grant money. Um, and what they're charging them with, again, to continue this theme, my second theme of non-traditional collection, they are not charging these researchers and scientists um, with criminal economic espionage or IP uh, theft um, in almost all cases, but instead, um, instead charging them with fraud um, uh, and with lack of disclosure of uh, conflicts of interest, um, and perhaps most seriously in an academic context, um, charging people who have been sharing embargoed uh, peer review proposals that have been sent to them as part of the peer review process and violating their peer review contract by sharing those proposals with colleagues abroad, uh, particularly in China. Um, and we have evidence that then those colleagues in China um, have been setting up companies um, and conducting that research um, and stealing those ideas before they've even been approved uh, in the United States, um, which is a gross violation of uh, academic rules uh, and academic norms and standards. Now, that being said, NIH has only singled out 61 research institutions in the United States out of the hundreds, if not thousands, of research institutes and only 16 cases for legal action. Um, I think that the mainstream media would give you the impression that there is a um, gigantic dragnet against thousands of ethnic Chinese researchers all over the country, um, and it's simply not borne out uh, by the facts. In fact, NSF... Um, recently came out and said that while 6,000-plus uh, ethnic Chinese researchers have received grants over the years, they only can identify 180 or so uh, cases of wrongdoing. Um, and again, this wrongdoing is very much um, uh, along the lines of fraud, um, in particular uh, researchers and scientists who have not disclosed uh, to their home research institution uh, the money that they are receiving 
uh, from uh, foreign universities, the foreign appointments that they have been receiving. Um, and in the case of NIH and NSF, um, um, uh, incorrectly filling out uh, U.S. government paperwork, um, which um, to the extent to which they are double dipping and receiving money from two different um, uh, organizations, one U.S. government, one PRC government for the same research, uh, which is a violation of the contracts that they would have uh, with the U.S. government. Um, now, I am unable uh, for a variety of reasons to comment on the Professor Lieber case. So any of you that have questions about that, I'm going to have to uh, demur on that. Uh, but I would say that, you know, the, the details of that case, um, while at the high end in terms of the, mon the money involved, are, are very similar to many of the cases we have around the country. And Professor Lieber is not alone um, in being of non-ethnic Chinese descent, who is nonetheless being investigated um, uh, for these uh, types of academic violations. Good examples, um, for instance, um, Professor Percival Zhang um, at Virginia Tech, um, who was a full-time professor there, and yet was also claiming uh, that he had a full-time job at the Tianjin Institute of Industrial Biology. Um, can't be in two places at once. I'm not a quantum uh, physicist, um, uh, but you know, clearly trying to charge the same hours to two different institutions. Um, similarly, Franklin Tao at the University of Kansas, similar charge that he um, had accepted a position at Fuzhou University, which was uh, simply violated the laws of physics in terms of being able um, to be two places at once and to receive two sources of unreported income. And Chun Zai Wang um, from the government um, uh, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric um, Agency, who had also accepted a, a, a Chinese position. Um, in all cases, um, uh, these um, transgressions had gone on for a long time, and it is fair to say that the U.S. government had not been as perspicacious as it could have in the past, uh, but the rules are the rules. Um, and so um, I think going forward, there's going to be much greater scrutiny um, of these kinds of activities um, involving research collaboration with China. Um, that being said, um, uh, the sunshine policy of being completely transparent, um, no one is being uh, persecuted or investigated uh, for their overt relationships uh, with Chinese research organizations, unless those overt relationships have some other reason to be investigated, such as violation of export controls, violated, violations of deemed exports or ITAR um, that, that fall within those rule systems. Um, and so maybe it's just because I've spent my life having to live transparently with U.S. government reporting requirements, but I think increasingly that's going to be de rigueur uh, for uh, academic research that involves uh, U.S. government grants and funding. Um, my third um, and final uh, point today uh, deals with um, uh, Chinese uh, cyber espionage and perhaps more recently, um, the digital disinformation operations uh, that we see uh, coming out of China, particularly during COVID-19. Um, now, cyber espionage um, has long been uh, China's preferred mode uh, of conducting espionage. It has numerous advantages. Um, because of social media, it is now possible to do targeting against all of us at distance uh, because of oversharing. Uh, that we do on LinkedIn and on Facebook and other things uh, that frankly are a targeter's dream from a human intelligence perspective. 
um, the logistics of, of doing cyber espionage versus having to use human assets um, and, um, you know, the potential signatures and vulnerabilities that creates, it's much preferable, for instance, in the intelligence game uh, to be able to do plausibly deniable cyber espionage as opposed to have using a human asset who could potentially then be caught and perp-walked on the steps of the federal courthouse in Los Angeles, uh, much to the embarrassment uh, of, of, the, uh, of the Chinese government. Um, now, this is still very current. In fact, I would argue that under COVID-19, uh, because of the travel restrictions uh, that are preventing the kind of non-traditional collection and uh, talent program uh, travel that we saw before, that cyber espionage is now more relevant than ever. Uh, recently, the U.S. government um, called out um, uh, APT-10, Advanced Persistent Threat Group 10, um, which had targeted 45 uh, U.S. companies across banking, finance, telecoms, biotech, auto, uh, healthcare, and mining, as well as U.S. government agencies like stealing 100,000 records from the personnel records from the U.S. Navy, uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab, um, and the NASA Goddard Space Center. And the attribution of this activity uh, was a contractor company in China that was operating at the behest of the Ministry of State Security's Tianjin State Security Bureau um, uh, in order to carry out these kinds of activities. Um, uh, now, this activity has become more sophisticated over time. Uh, there's a lot of interesting empirical challenges in analyzing this activity, um, uh, particularly after Xi Jinping's supposed promise in the Rose Garden in 2015 that commercial cyber espionage was going to decline. Uh, what instead we saw was a dramatic increase in the quality of Chinese uh, government tradecraft um, and uh, a dramatic increase in the attribution problems associated with that tradecraft as they moved their command and control to U.S. cloud um, and increased their use of virtual machines and other things in order to obfuscate what they were doing. But just this morning in the New York Times, um, there are some very interesting articles about China's growing use of digital disinformation operations um, in the United States. Um, here, I would draw some important distinctions uh, with uh, the Russians. Um, the Russians, um, whether we're looking at their activities in Ukraine or uh, the near abroad in Transdenester or the Baltics or in Belarus or even the United States, we see a clear, sophisticated pattern of them pitting left against right, right against left, both ends against the middle, um, and really seeking to delegitimize um, political and social institutions inside those countries. Historically, China's more uh, timid efforts uh, at information operations had exclusively fallen into two buckets. One was to refute um, quite loudly uh, Chinese criticism from abroad, um, uh, for instance, its um, activities in Xinjiang, um, its activities in, in, in suppressing the protests in Hong Kong, uh, or to present China in the best possible positive light abroad. Um, uh, but we are increasingly seeing a real edge um, uh, to, to Chinese information operations and more of a subversion element. This was certainly true in what we saw in the Taiwan presidential election where the Chinese military's 311 base, um, otherwise known as the Voice of the Strait, uh, was conducting operations uh, on Facebook, uh, which is very popular in Taiwan, particularly pro-Han Guoyu sites, um, and certainly seeking 
to uh, defame and lower the support for the DPP candidate, Tsai Ing-wen, um, and even going, um, even doing information operations inside of digital channels that we don't have here in the United States, like the Telnet-based PTT forums, um, particularly the hashtag hate politics forum, um, in order to push uh, the pro-Han uh, message. Um, we certainly, we began to see uh, the initial use of so-called deep fake videos, um, which I think is a harbinger of things that we might see in the 2020 presidential election here in the United States. Um, and then finally, we've seen this very aggressive so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, where dozens of uh, Chinese diplomatic officials have set up accounts on Twitter, um, which in my view is uh, pretty cowardly considering that it's a platform that, that the majority of their own population can't see. So it's clearly directed, it directed information operations uh, outside of China. But these are extremely popular on Chinese social media right now, and there is no incentive for the leadership to rein it in. Um, we unfortunately now live in a, under pandemic and in a period of increased tribalism in my view, where there's a reduced penalty for othering outsiders um, populism and uh, in-group rallying is all the rage. Um, and I can't think of any reason why a Chinese political leader would want to step in front of that train. Um, uh, you know, and, they, and I think Xi Jinping, frankly, um, has a great deal of fear from a Boshi Lai kind of character or a Zhirinovsky kind of character um, that decides to play to the crowds um, and push a very anti-foreign pro-China populist message. Um, and so we're certainly looking for that bubbling up um, in, the, in the Chinese system. So let me conclude um, uh, by talking about some of the effects I think that COVID-19 in particular is, is having upon the phenomena that I've described and, and where we might be going from here um, as we uh, continue to try and flatten the curve and recover um, and, but still confronting perhaps a world that will never be the same uh, post-COVID-19. I would say that the, the business community, um, and Bill Overholt um, is keenly uh, aware of this, um, had been the last sustained pillar supporting um, uh, strategic Sino-US uh, cooperation and collaboration. Uh, but in the last five or six years, we certainly saw that pillar begin to get shake uh, shaky and break um, as it became increasingly uh, difficult for some companies to make money in China as IP theft and economic espionage became more rampant. Um, and so it was already shaky before the trade war. Uh, the trade war certainly made that shakier. Um, we also saw Xi Jinping and the Chinese system regressing to greater focus on central planning, um, greater privilege being given to state-owned enterprises, um, greater focus on state-directed R&D. Um, and frankly, the, le the playing field was becoming less and less level, um, even though 30 years after reform and opening, many of us had believed that the playing field would become more level. And, and for me, one of my metrics of this is um, the, the fleeing um, um, American expatriates from China, uh, who I thought would never leave, uh, but, are be but have begun leaving uh, because of their perception that the system was never going to give them a fair shake um, uh, and the pollution and all of the other things that had made uh, life there less than hospitable. Um, and the trade war was already breaking uh, the WTO and the multilateral uh, trade system. Um, COVID-19, in my view, was only accelerating those trends. 
Um, I believe that we're going to come out of COVID-19 with a permanently changed global economy. Uh, many of the multinational companies uh, that I talked to uh, that had feared that they needed to diversify their global supply chains because of the trade war um, are now uh, using um, global pandemic as a um, uh, non-trade war related rationale uh, for um, uh, diversifying those global supply chains. I think the era of extreme clustering uh, of industrial clusters inside of China uh, will be over. Uh, but China's strategic plans have not changed. The go out strategy has not plant changed. Uh, BRI, um, One Belt, One Road has not changed. And Xi Jinping's aspirations for the Chinese dream uh, have not changed. And therefore, I think this puts even more pressure on using economic espionage and recruiting talent from abroad as potentially some of the multinational enterprises that had been the target of domestic uh, technology transfer seek to do that production and innovation um, elsewhere. Um, you know, going forward also, I think we should, we should not expect um, to see some changes and some major thrusts in US policy uh, in particular um, uh, executive orders uh, that seek to impose um, uh, sanctions on state-owned enterprise executives who benefit from cyber espionage. That, that was, there was an executive order to that effect under the Obama administration. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see it again um, in, the, in the current administration. Um, obviously, we've already reformed the committee, the law and the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States with the so-called FIRMA, uh, which, which made it less voluntary which gave the U.S. government the opportunity to initiate investigations uh, of Chinese merger and acquisition and investment activity. Um, I would expect a greater strengthening of the Foreign Agent Registration Act um, and uh, less leniency about people um, acting as um, agents of the Chinese government um, who have not registered under FARA. Um, I would, and for many of the universities that I talked to, I would expect uh, deemed export reform in other words, um, a deemed export is when, for instance, an individual at a lab uh, that, you know, a U.S. company might run in China, if they had a PRC national working on an instrument in that lab in China that would have required an export license to sell that piece of instrument to a Chinese company or institute, they have to get a deemed export um, uh, license for that. I wouldn't be surprised in the near term uh, for a uh, foreign national using that instrument at a lab in a U.S. university, that that U.S. university would also be required uh, to get a deemed export license. I would expect greater scrutiny of the student visa system under CVIS. Um, and I would even expect that we're going to see major changes in Hong Kong's custom status, um, which had been a separate custom zone uh, post-reversion as a way of protecting uh, Hong Kong's economic and political rights, uh, but I would, but has but has instead become the major transshipment point for illicit tech transfer to China because of the difference in those customs regulations. I would expect uh, to see in the near future that those um, special Hong Kong exemptions uh, would be repealed, uh, and Hong Kong would increasingly be treated as part of a PRC custom zone. Um, and none of those, none of those uh, trends, I think, would be um, uh, decelerated or, or, or um, uh, changed because, because of COVID. Uh, so let me stop right there, Bill, and I'm happy to take um, any of the questions uh, that may have popped up in the chat that, that, that you could help me moderate. 
let me lead off with a, uh, one question. Um, so all these bad things are happening and we're trying to prevent that. Uh, there were a lot of good things happening too. Um, uh, scholarly conferences. Um, when I was at Harvard's Ash Center, uh, before the Xi Jinping era, we always had uh, three vice ministers from, uh, from China who would typically spend a semester. Uh, and they, they got to understand how the U.S. worked. Uh, it facilitated my research a lot to be able to walk across the hall and, and say, you know, what's this uh, China 2030 all about? Um, and an awful lot of that has been shut down. Uh, actually, the guy who, who wrote four books within China promoting the idea of Thousand Talents was a, a colleague there for a year, uh, and he was very idealistic. Uh, so what we've found is the bad things that weren't being addressed are being addressed. But on both sides, the, the good exchanges, which, which I think are very necessary for both our countries to understand each other, are being shut down too. There, there are no vice ministers coming to spend a year anymore. Uh, that, that's a, a Xi Jinping decision. So do you see a way that we can, we can encourage and restore uh, some of the good exchanges uh, while we while we deal with the, the bad things that uh, everybody, at least in America, acknowledges are happening. Well, I mean, I if, I can only be fair and say that for the first ten years of my career at Rand, uh, that a great deal of my professional activity involved participating in precisely the kind of venues and fora that you're talking about, Bill. Um, whether it was um, track twos, pure academic, although there were, there were really no such thing as track twos with, with China, right? And particularly when you're dealing with organizations like Kicker and, um, and, and others, but, but track 1.5s, uh, because most of my research over the years has focused on areas that are pretty sensitive, cyber, nuclear, um, uh, you know, uh, intellectual property theft, things along those lines, space, um, and the Chinese always prefer to have um, so-called track 1.5 dialogues where non-governmental institutions are technically the host. And then we can each invite government officials from both sides who can make non-statements, issue non-papers, um, uh, signal each other, uh, socialize with each other. Um, and I have certainly seen the value of that over the years. Um, all I can say is that there's probably going to be greater scrutiny of who specifically those individuals are. Um, as we learn more and more about influence organizations um, and um, the, the, you know, the, the actual provenance and origins of individuals that might not have been scrutinized in the past may, may achieve more scrutiny. But God knows there were plenty of times when I would have to contact people in the US government and try and put people on must fly lists um, so that they could get through the visa process to be able to come uh, to various conferences. 
So certainly the answer is not um, to completely close all of our sphincters um, and not have those levels of dialogue. I mean, we even had those levels of dialogue uh, during the worst uh, periods of the, of the Cold War, um, and, and they certainly have their purpose. So we may be, we may, the pendulum may have swung um, overcorrected the wrong way. That being said, um, as someone who has been uh, PNG'd from China uh, since the publication of Chinese Industrial Espionage, um, I would tell um, uh, current and future scholars uh, that we live in a, uh, a boon age in terms of being able to still conduct research that doesn't involve interviewing, uh, that our access, uh, while being increasingly restricted, um, to, you know, vast amounts of materials um, available online. Um, I, I certainly insisted when I was at the, the one time in my career that I've been to Fairbank last year, I insisted on being taken down into the vaunted library um, so that I could get access uh, so I could see some of those materials. Um, uh, so uh, China is very unique in the extent to which um, particularly on issues that I research on military and other things to have such a vast publishing enterprise. Um, so it's not like we're reverting in my view back to the, the era where all we had was people's daily and Beijing review and uh, a couple of other propaganda rags uh, to be able to, to, to try and divine what was going on in China. Um, uh, but, you know, I would also make the argument um, that it's the absence of our track one dialogues um, under, this, under the previous um, uh, st uh, security dialogues we used to have with the Chinese, uh, that those were absolutely essential uh, that the Obama administration ran. You can have those dialogues even when you strongly disagree with people. Um, you know, I embrace the dialectic, um, and I think that we should embrace the dialectic. Uh, you know, if we can't defend um, our positions and policies with our Chinese counterparts, then maybe they're not worth defending. And so, um, uh, I just think that there's been um, an unfortunate retrenchment um, and um, a lot of the ill will on both sides related to um, expelling of reporters, um, which, which I abhor on the Chinese side because I think that having U.S. journalists uh, in China is as good for China as it is for the United States. Um, and so... Um, you know, uh, I, I do believe that, you know, post COVID-19, we're going to have to restore uh, some of these mechanisms. But if you saw the Pew polling yesterday, uh, there has been there has been a major shift in American attitudes uh, about China because of the progression of this pandemic. Um, and it's going to take a long time for the relationship to heal from this. I, I think uh, we are all indebted to you for this very thoughtful, detailed uh, analysis. The question we have, I think, uh, in universities is that there are a lot of good reasons for cooperation, a lot of good reasons uh, for study that are open. Uh, and how do you draw the line between what is good research that should be encouraged, mutual learning, if we were working on uh, something to get uh, reduce uh, the problems of the virus now, uh, and we came up with some joint results that are obviously good for everybody. So how do you draw the line as national policy for what we should be doing to encourage a global research and where it becomes a national problem 
uh, where it's uh, stealing uh, and is a real issue? Well, I mean, I think the most obvious candidates, Ezra, are areas in which um, our mutual research is mutually beneficial. And, you know, number one on the list is climate change. Um, number two on the list is uh, global biohealth. Um, we have, you know, the, you know, if anything, the last five to 10 years has cast into stark relief uh, the importance of both of those. Um, uh, now, that's not to say that within those, um, like, for instance, in global biohealth, there are certainly things um, where there are national security implications, uh, where things can be weaponized. Uh, but we have mechanisms under the Biological Warfare Convention, uh, which the U.S. and China are both signatories to for dealing with that. Um, and um, frankly, I think that that collaboration should also focus on um, raising certain standards um, I think that one of the dilemmas we have with China on on uh, global public health rate uh, in the last decade has been the extent to which the difference in the Chinese regulations and rules and norms have meant that they've become the place of choice uh, for various types of genomic research um, and uh, human subject testing uh, that frankly doesn't meet um, our um, ethical and regulatory standards. I'm particularly concerned about uh, Chinese research involving things like CRISPR, um, and we but we can't alter that by um, uh, cutting ourselves off uh, from it. But instead, there has to be an incentive-based system where uh, the Chinese side sees the value uh, in collaborating with us, and in exchange, um, has to meet um, certain regulatory and ethical thresholds that we're comfortable with. And that's one of the values, as you know, from your many exchanges. Um, uh, one of the many things that come out of that um, are greater understanding of each other's systems, um, as well as greater socialization about those kinds of standards. Um, and that certainly won't happen if we're doing that research in isolation from one another. I want to thank the speaker again for spending the time and giving us such an informative presentation. No, well, thank, thank you, Ezra and Bill, for the invitation. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you guys in some of my favorite Patriot bars in Southie when all this recent unpleasantness is over. I guess on that note, we will conclude. Thank you all. And um, a recording of this will be made available on our website and across our social media channels. Um, thank you again.